Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. On this week's episode, I am talking to Michelle Champagne. I first discovered Michelle's work about five years ago or so when she was publishing That New Design Smell, which was this really interesting sort of publication, event series, and online forum for design criticism that she founded while she was working on her MA at the Sandberg Institute. Michelle is also the co-founder of ABZ, a uh, independent school for art design and computation. She's written for the Walker Art Center, C Magazine, and Volume, and has led workshops around the world. Her work moves between research, creative direction, and publication design, and her current project is something she's working on at Art Text on the happiness industry and how it gets tangled up in digital surveillance. In this episode, Michelle and I talk about this varied career, the challenges with doing too many things, and why she just wants to call herself a designer. We also talk about that new design smell and the state of design criticism and her own research on anti-criticism culture. And we wonder aloud about why there is so little infrastructure for the kinds of deep discussions around graphic design that we're interested in. I've admired Michelle's work for a long time and just really loved this conversation. She's a thoughtful designer and, in my opinion, a much-needed voice in these conversations. I really appreciated this conversation. I hope that you enjoy it, too. Scratching the Surface is supported in part by listeners like you. One year ago, we launched the membership program to help support the ongoing production of the podcast. If you enjoy the show and want to help support it and see it continue, you can become a member for just $5 a month or $50 a year. Members get an exclusive monthly newsletter that recaps the month's episodes and gives a preview of who's on next, as well as links to recent work and news from former guests. These memberships truly help keep the podcast going, and I appreciate all of your support and hope that you enjoy this conversation with Michelle Champagne. kind of came to your work or discovered your work i i think it was probably about five six seven years ago uh probably through twitter and i'm pretty sure it was through uh, a project that you were doing at the time called that new design smell and this was right when i started getting kind of seriously thinking about design criticism and design writing and kind of the larger design discourse and it seemed to be something that you were also interested at the time and as I was thinking about that in preparing for this I kind of noticed a lot of parallels that I hadn't seen before that now I I believe that new design smell was also part of a kind of graduate thesis um, and was about kind of new ways of talking about design that are not so much monologue based kind of just from the top down but much more kind of driven in discussion which was a lot of my interest and so i would kind of like to start there with that kind of the similarities of our our graduate thesis projects because this podcast started that way also where where did these ideas come from for you and what kind of led you to a graduate program where you are interested in exploring these ideas around criticism and, and dialogue. I was living in the Netherlands at the time, and in my first year of my master degree at the Sundberg Institute, I was making a series of observations. 
One of those observations was the mandatory optimism that I was seeing at the What Design Can Do conference in Amsterdam. I attended quite a few on one occasion as a participant and on a second occasion with a press pass. And I was really uh, shocked by how few very open and honest conversations were happening, especially in the breakout sessions, for example. And that felt very strange to me. Uh, Sandberg Institute was a very open and discursive uh, space, and I kept kind of like stepping out into these other types of activities for this conference or for Dutch Design Week. And at the same time, what was happening was I had discovered more 20th century types of design criticism, and I was kind of amazed by how much I was learning. Mm -hmm. More so from that than by yeah. these very, very pumped up cheerleader kind of conferences and, yeah. and festivals. Right? Uh, the, the marketing side of design in the Netherlands is pretty... Um, it's kind of shocking yeah. <laughs> and, and awesome in a, a strange way. And uh, since I was learning way more from way more traditional forms of design criticism, text-based, printed, etc., I kind of kept those ob observations to myself and was just letting them sink in for mm -hmm. the first year or so. And then... I started researching more particular things relevant to that. I was uh, learning about the effects of uh, positive thinking and positive mm. psychology. Yeah. In the West, I'd read Barbara Ehrenreich's uh, fantastic uh, book called Bright Sided, mm. which I, I believe is the North American title for the book. Uh, the UK title for the book is Smile or Die, which <laughs> I bought. Okay. So that began a series of readings on positive thinking and positive psychology, and those those texts were more so about the effects of these types of uh, thinkings on, I'd say, either the U.S. or the English-speaking uh, West. And I started to make the links between those ways of thinking and the What Design Can Do conference. Mm -hmm. Right. So seeing positive thinking's effects on design. And in Canada, at the same time, you, you had a very long-standing uh, tradition of a series of design leaders who were also cheerleaders for mandatory optimism. So, for example, on the cover of the Walrus magazine, you have a cover story by Bruce Mao Design. Well, by Bruce Mao, specifically. Not so much his firm. Uh, but by himself. And the first line of the essay, if I'm not mistaken, is, you know, that designers can't afford to be cynics. And the cynics are wrong because mm. Mm. the world is getting better. So let's all just keep making things better. And for mm. those who don't think that things are going better, well, they're wrong. And he had this uh, very thought leader type position. And mm. I don't say thought leader as compliment necessarily right. yeah <laughs> i know what you mean yeah i think we know like about these types of like very bold charlatan like uh thought leaders uh like steven pinker for example mm -hmm. who has a very similar line of uh rhetoric um yeah i started seeing a lot of that 
in Canada, which to be frank, I hadn't really noticed before, but I, I saw it all from where I was then living in the Netherlands. And so my attempt to kind of insert a little bit of honesty or openness mm-hmm. into this was an attempt to revive criticism somehow. I also come from a like a Franco-Ontarian culture in Ontario, uh, which is a province of Canada. And I was, uh, I grew up in Ottawa and I, I grew up, uh, in a French grade school and through a French high school. Okay. This kind of openness and like, you know, giving unsolicited feedback to strangers on the street and <laughs> just speaking your was like normal fare. Yeah. This was just normal. And so, being in the Netherlands uh, made me realize that I was like that, and part of my reaction to all of the chest uh, beating was partly because of my background, and then partly because I was engaged in this research on positive thinking and positive psychology. Right. So the question then becomes, how can you generate a that that thing that you just are? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> how can become a bit more intelligent at engaging with it, right? Especially as you're kind of coming through design and learning more and more about uh, its different ways of being. And the idea of a magazine came up and the idea of going across media came up and the idea of it starting on a website and it being more of a discussion form emerged. And then the idea of archiving it as a print object emerged. And all yeah. of that decision-making came out of that. So it was partly an experience of like reflecting back on how I was and where, where I'd grown up and, and the kind of communities and societies I was really part of. Part of it was going through this education in the Netherlands and going through the research that was particular to my project. For people who aren't familiar with the format, can you talk a little bit more about kind of what you were just saying there at the end about how it, it was... This, this publication starts online and then is kind of dialogue and conversation based and then archived as a print publication. Can you kind of just talk about that flow and that structure and how you kind of conceived of that and how that how those pieces all work together? Yes, it's it's a it's a web to print magazine and it was launched in 2011 in a Cold War era bunker under a bridge in Vondel Park. <laughs> and so part of its way of being was also uh, part of that and part of a series of performances and events in the guise of fake news. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's a discussion forum, it's a print magazine, and it's a series of performances all at the same time, which I find interesting because, I mean, not so much because of the media model that it has, but because people are so fascinated by it. But to me, it's just like the way it should have been. <laughs> right, right, right. But then how did you, because if I, I remember correctly, and, and tell me if this is, if I'm kind of misremembering this, but there was some sort of the the comments section or like the the tweets and Twitter were very central to what was published as opposed to, uh, you know, just the article, but that you were including comments and all this stuff that's kind of very internet-y, you know what I mean? It seemed to me that 
I guess in 2010, when this media model really started taking shape, that was just the way that I saw the mm. web. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's how I engaged with it. It seemed uh, quite normal to me, and I suppose I took it for granted. When I arrived in the Netherlands in 2009, I was working with a new media art foundation called Mediamatic Foundation. Okay. And they developed a lot of social networks mm. where these types of encounters were quite common. And I grew up, uh, or I had grown up on Metafilter and MySpace. Yeah. And so these things all seemed quite uh, natural to me. Mm -hmm. The decision was still made for particular reasons. I mean, this was at the time when Facebook was just coming onto the scene. Right. And a lot of newspapers had websites that were these types of repositories or kind of like archives where they would toss material up somewhere. So this is before commenting became like a garbage fire. Uh, yeah, that's kind of what I was kind of getting to is <laughs> how that changed. Yeah, it really is, uh, I guess, you know, it's it's a foray and it's a play with comments before they were taken up by very large mainstream news organizations who did not moderate them properly. Right. Who let everything fall into disarray. Who not only did not really build their sites as a way to engage with the readers, but they mm -hmm. would just plot in like a discus. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, put in a, pl a, a plug-in at the end of the article and kind of forget about it. Yeah. Uh, I think there were some really interesting attempts to do better there, but by and large, everyone's closing down their comments now because they, they did not nurture that. They did not nurture that encounter with the readers. They did not moderate them properly. They did not gatekeep the timing. You know, there were some anomalies. So for example, you have uh, this online uh, debate module, I guess you could call it, on the New York Times website where you have two figures uh, arguing for a resolution and two figures arguing against a res resolution. And the comments to those encounters are open for a very short set of time and then they're closed. Mm -hmm. And the debaters are very active in there. Uh, so I, I don't want to pretend that there are, are no interesting things happening anywhere. Right. But by and large, a lot of uh, neglect occurred. Mm-hmm. And so mm -hmm. when when I talk to publishers and editors now and I talk about, you know, how they relate to their readers, to them, the word comment conjures up like a garbage fire. And it, it hurts my credibility. Like, it's a real problem in, in the consulting circuits, uh, so to speak. I think a lot of uh, professionals are curious about me. I think they would like to hear what I have to say about certain things. Because I have worked on a lot of publications on and offline. Uh, but of course, yeah, comments is like a huge pebble that everybody trips over. Yeah. So I think it's so much about the comments, although uh, that new design smell had a very interesting website in the sense that um, its commenting form came from the top down. Mm, right. That's right. So there's a thing called below the line, and that's what most newspaper mm -hmm. what most newspapers do. They, they kind of plot and then ignore the comments below the last line of text mm -hmm. on an article page. This was an attempt to plot it above the line, quite simply. Right. So you knew that you were there to do something, 
But I also didn't allow readers to read the first paragraph and then comment right away, for example, the way in which you can do it on Medium. Mm. Still, I wanted uh, readers to chew through the whole text before you know, interrupting, so to speak. Um, but yeah, this is this was a big part of the website, but I would say that it was more so the attempt to create this two-way conversation between critics and the readers, mm-hmm. and that's what took shape at that time. I feel like there's kind of two strands to this that I think are interesting. I think you're kind of talking about this um, unease that you're feeling about this kind of positive thinking around design and this this kind of inherent optimism that the design discourse feels like it has to have uh but then you're also kind of talking about ideas around conversation and dialogue and that that this is a uh two-way conversation that it isn't just kind of one person projecting out but that there's kind of feedback coming in and i'm wondering how those two ideas come together or what was it about conversation and dialogue that you felt could could help kind of I don't want to say solve but start to wrestle with this optimism that you were so uneasy about I think all designers should be inspired by their irritations (laughs) they should should hold on to what really bugs them Mm -hmm. I don't think they should toss them out of their their senses or their minds or their bodies whenever they think that it, they're being negative or that they need to, you know, cheer up or chin up. I mm-hmm. think designers should be incredibly inspired by their irritations <laughs> because look what it can amount to. Uh, and, I, you know, what's interesting is that this, this project could have very easily have become like a series of live debates, right? There's a different media landscape amongst us now. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what I chose at the time was to run a like a comment driven discussion forum and then to edit that down into a printed piece purely for archival purposes. The print editions were not for redistribution. So it could have taken many different forms. I think these conversations uh, should be more open and honest and they should they should exist anyways in in any way that they can. How long did you end up kind of running and editing this after you graduated? To be honest, uh, the magazine did a lot of things. Everything except for launch another issue. (laughs) Quite fascinating because uh, there were were all sorts of panels and public lectures. Uh, One, for example, um, the AIGA's Design Educators Conference called Blunt Explicit and Critical graphic design now? Well, I'm kind of like mumbling over that. Um, well, I mean, it's just it's just to say that there have been public lectures and panels and workshops and exhibits and uh, all sorts of uh, sponsoring of other people's debates going on. There have been tons of activities uh, through the AIGA and also through my colleagues at the Department of Unusual Certainties who were running more Oxford-style debates at the Gladstone Hotel in Toronto. There were also uh, activities happening at the Museum of Contemporary Art Detroit. Uh, this this magazine went places. It just never took the form of a magazine again. Right, right. <laughs> How did that... I have two questions that may or may not be related. I'm 
I'm interested in how that project and what you learned from that changed the other work that you did over the last, you know, almost 10 years now. Like, how did, how did kind of spending that time in that research, thinking about these things, did that actually change your career? It did in the sense that it made me want to go back to it nonstop because I couldn't find it in my career. I would say that my experience, either as a hands-on designer embedding myself within teams for redesigns or for rehiring uh, publishing and design teams or in consulting or doing research temporarily or in freelancing, no matter what my involvement was, it really seemed to me like a lot of uh, magazines and newspapers really separated their print and their digital worlds. Mm. The reasons I can ascertain in terms of how their revenue models flow and how the management felt like the skills should be kind of concentrated over here. So we'll put oh, the right. developers together over here and, and in a different building. Mm -hmm. And the print team doesn't really get to change the website because it's a template decided by like a group marketing uh, outfit within the organization. I met editors who were allergic to the internet. Mm -hmm. I met uh, those wonderful kind of like... Um, scratchy old journalists who were allergic to the internet. Right. But I've also met a lot of, um, you know, editors who, who also kind of completely dismiss print. And anyway, I mean, there's, there's, there's a real cultural divide that that's still ongoing in Canada anyway. Like in my experience in Toronto and Montreal, there's still quite a bit of a divide mm -hmm. uh, culturally. And uh, my attempt has always been to bridge that divide. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I've been successful. <laughs> I, th I think you probably have a little bit, right? I've always tried to move the needle, but I would have to say that considering the challenges ahead for the book and magazine and newspaper publishing mm. industries, uh, the, the, the reticence to change and the slowness yeah. uh, surprised me. And at the same time, certain things were going way too quick and that speed also surprised me, right? So throwing right. out all traditions is not the way forward either. I felt that by having an open mind towards what the media model for this kind of like, you know, critic and reader love fest should be. Uh, mm -hmm. No, and it really is, it is a gesture of love because I, I, I I believe that, that critics who do write either really positive or, or negative reviews, I do feel like they care very, very much yeah. about those subject matters. And I care about those subject matters too, and I always wanted more of that in my life. So, yeah, I was always, uh, I, I suppose, trying to find my way back to this openness to teams rethinking their publishing projects and being open to figuring out new revenue models, new media models to make this happen and to bring readers along with them. Because I suppose the reader has always been on the minds of writers and editors, uh, but I, yeah. I feel like some really do want to speak to their readers and are quite genuine with those sentiments. I'd say the vast majority of the individuals in my experiences they use the reader as a proxy for what they want. And there's a huge... <laughs> right. yeah. And anyway, it's a really interesting rabbit hole in and of itself, right? Is, is our relationship 
in our pandering or our total ignorance of our readers. I mean, it's it's a funny thing that way. Yeah. Well, I mean, that that's kind of leads into to my second part of the question a bit is I'm I'm curious about you know, over the last couple of years you've worked as kind of what I'm going to call a kind of traditional graphic designer. You've done research work, you've written essays, you've led workshops, you've taught, you kind of are your work is kind of also moving across all of these mediums simultaneously. And I'm curious if that was kind of a a conscious decision, if that was another way for you to kind of explore these ideas, you know, because you couldn't find it, were you kind of just like, you know, moving into these different modes or these different roles in an attempt to kind of find these answers? You know what I, you know what I mean there? I'm kind of curious about that shifting between roles in your own career and, and kind of moving in and out of, of uh, different positions. I would consider them all like a single position, which is that there are certain things that, that I believe, I mean, there are lots of things that I would like to explore, but I, I believe there are things that other people would like to explore. And Mm -hmm. where are the places where we can meet? Where, where are those places? Uh, very few major galleries or museums in Canada collect or study design or architecture. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking about anomalies. Mm-hmm. So where do we get together? A lot of the existing magazines are basically bound up trade brochures that paraphrase press releases, and they don't even shoot their own photography. It's all provided by the designers. Right, or right. by the architects. Like, where where are we going to have the open and honest conversations that we need to be having? Yeah. And so you see, you see your work, whether you are leading a workshop or writing an essay, is a way to kind of try to create that forum that you're talking about or create that space or be a part of that space that you feel like we don't have. I would like more of it. <laughs> I, do, I, I do try to do my bit. I do try to contribute. And when I discover uh, really amazing things that I think are underappreciated or when I discover underdogs, I do try to share them with others, mm-hmm. talk about them, but also talk about why they're interesting. Mm-hmm. But likewise, if I feel that a certain project emerges and it may not be so amazing and maybe even pernicious, who is going to say something? Where can we talk about this? Right. And so often the gaps that I see, I do try to contribute what I can, but I realize that that I, I am a designer and I do wish that uh, arts administrators and design administrators and I wish arts editors and design editors, I wish mm-hmm. that they realize that this is their job too. Yeah. It's hard to become the very support systems that you think hope or think should be there to help support you it's hard to become the support system yourself do you it's how, hard to play flute and be the conductor at the same time there are too many things going on sometimes i'm sure you feel that yeah i mean that's that's exactly what my next question was going to be so i recently talked to um oliver wainwright uh the architecture critic for the guardian and we started talking about the the role of the critic versus the role of the designer and he i don't want i don't want to misstate his position but I, kind of basically what what he was arguing is that you it's really hard to be both you 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 by by being the critic it's kind of like 
throwing rocks inside the house where you kind of need that critical perspective. And I've been thinking about that since I talked to him because I think he's kind of right, but I also don't want him to be right because I, I'm kind of trying to operate at both of those. And I think you're somebody who's kind of trying to operate at both of those to an extent. And I'm curious how being the critic, I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying that you call yourself a critic or your role criticism, even though I do think there is a critical element to it. Does that change how you actually think about your job as a designer? And you, you know, you keep saying I, I am a designer also does do those how do those intersect for you i'm i'm only a designer but i do feel that everything i do contributes to one project or attempt which is to create as many open and honest forums for conversation mm -hmm. and disagreement and debate i i only wish that the support systems were there around me in order to facilitate to facilitate these conversations right right it's quite difficult to to be a critic yeah. at the same time so do you and i believe play a different role i don't i don't i don't i mean there there are two types of positions that i have taken before that i think do fall more squarely into that so uh through educational activities yeah when you are a participant or a student's coach or you are their professor you can be their critic mm -hmm. you have a slightly different approach to it, however. I mean, your goal is to accompany them and to help them bring their projects to fruition. Mm -hmm. uh, the other kind of positions I have uh, taken on have been more traditional critic activities, I guess. Um, is that a role or an activity? I'd say I see the role of a critic as coming in from the outside in giving designers points of views they wouldn't have thought about before, I also expect uh, historical accuracy. I mm -hmm. expect intellectual yeah. rigor. I expect uh, less taste mongering. I expect less uh, denigration of people and practices they don't understand well enough. Uh, and I also expect uh, the ability to to be very positive and to tell us why they think something is amazing and also the freedom to come in and say that this is this is a very negative development and here's why. Right. That's right. what I expect from critics. That's what I believe their role is. And so I have sometimes become a critic in that sense. Right. So I have film reviews. <laughs> yeah. I've literally critiqued and written a piece of criticism about a design film. Okay. Right? Yeah. I can't do that. But to be honest, I wish someone else was doing it. <laughs> right, right. It's like, you know, take myself off the hook and not be doing that. Like, I wish critics were doing the criticism. I don't know. I mean, I think I'm, I think I'm like you in that I still consider all of my work design. Uh, and I still consider myself first and foremost a designer. Um, and so sometimes I'm designing a book or a website but sometimes I'm designing a syllabus and that teaching you know my teaching work and maybe it's because I have a design background I think of that as a type of design also or or writing a text and I guess I guess what I'm curious about is do you see 
you know, when you say you're a designer, does that include running a workshop, writing an essay? Is that designed to you? Not always. Okay. Of course, these are things that go through a kind of design process, but when I launch a decentralized art and design school to get all these different types of things done and workshops happening and lectures made and conversations going, Again, I mean, I, I, I would not consider myself a design educator. I'm doing it because I wish the educators were doing this. <laughs> right, right, right. I understand. <laughs> you know, it's hard to run around and plug all these kinds of holes because part of you always feels like you're dilly-dallying or you're prancing around or you're an amateur. Mm-hmm. And a lot of insecurity sets itself up, although people from the outside often see it as, you know, a great bouquet of skills, you know, uh, how talented this person might be. But in, in my experience, and a lot of my colleagues' experiences, we end up doing these, you know, we end up writing these pieces of criticism. We end up running these autonomous educational activities because there are things that we don't see happening in our universities. There are things we don't see happening right. in our magazines. There are things we don't see happening in our museums, right? Where are the support systems? I mean, this is something that really... I'm trying to grapple with at the moment. Yeah. Right? Like where are those support systems that are supposed to be creating all these like open and honest ways of being and learning and operating. But this idea of support systems, I think is really interesting. And I often think about kind of like what you were just saying so much of, you know, working across all these different mediums actually means that you're not going deep on any one of them, that there is just kind of like, you know, little dips into each of these because there's not the the time and space and and money to kind of build that system. So I guess the question that I'm asking is, what would a system like that look like? Or or is that even possible, maybe is the question. How how would that kind of live in the world? Oh yeah, umbrella umbrella that's like a Chinese buffet question. Huh? <laughs> there are many options. Uh, there are many options available. I mean, I don't mean I don't I don't mean to ask you to like solve no. the question we've been talking about for the last hour, but no. But it's uh, it's interesting because uh, I find myself more and more unable to design. Hmm. I can see the, the the gaps that exist. And I always wondered if those uh, activities were available, if I would be in this situation. And so when I do hop into this kind of like support system role, mm-hmm. uh, I do realize that sometimes it doesn't take much. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, uh, like it feels big, but sometimes all you need to start with is one dish. <laughs> Right. So the, the 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 bigger pictures are are they're a real problem. Uh, my attempts at going into the kitchen and trying to whip something up, I think, have been quite interesting, and I don't think it takes much to get going. Mm-hmm. It doesn't take much. I've been running a whole series of uh, of. Uh, independent uh, talks and workshops and summer schools uh, through this project I call ABZ, yeah. which I partly run with uh, Greg J. Smith and Gary Ng. And we're based in Toronto and Montreal. 
And all it took was like a space with a projector and some duct tape and a bunch of friends. And off we went. Mm -hmm. And so the good news is that it, it doesn't take much. But I do feel personally like there's a conflict in me all the time that I'm spending all this time and energy becoming the very support system that I wish I had. Right. When do I get back to being a designer? Yeah. I don't know. Is that something that's important to you to get back to being a designer? It's the thing that I feel I am the best at. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I, I get it. I, it makes sense. I, as somebody who has watched you and your work for, you know, eight years or whatever it's been now, I also think you're a pretty good organizer and, and that that kind of bringing people together and fostering that dialogue. I think you're good at that also, but that's not the role that you want to be in. No, I think that I would like to see the critics do criticism. I would like to see the educators do education. And yeah. I would like to see the curators run museums. And I would like to see the editors support that as well, right? It's, um, and I'm not, I'm not going to... Um, pretend that I think everybody needs to be in some plastic bucket that never overflows into the next bucket. Right. I think people are, they're complex and they do have many different talents and interests and skills. So what I'm saying is not to, you know, get everybody in their corner and to defend their turf. But at one point, uh, I do feel that the organizing uh, strains me. Mm, okay. Yeah. It strains me a lot because a lot of it is still quite kind of like based on duct tape. <laughs> right, yeah. And so, again, what's lovely is that you can, with a projector and some duct tape and some friends, launch like a summer typography school. Right. But once you start trying to actually like scale something properly so that it becomes a proper support system for designers, right. the duct tape snaps. Right. Right. right, you still need institutions to help support you. So, for example, when when I'm running uh, some sort of like public talk, and I have like a cultural institution not being like a true partner like they should be, uh, yeah, I have to do everything myself. Right, it's quite stressful. Yeah, and uh, and and I can tell the difference because now I'm I'm, I'm currently working on a project with a cultural institution that's that's being a true partner. Mm. So they are doing their support work and I'm doing my designer work and we are together building these spaces where artists and designers can come together and, and have, you know, group discussions and we'll be planning public talks and an afternoon workshop. Oh, interesting. Right? It just works. Yeah. So I suppose when, when you can, you know, do your thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, 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 I know exactly what you mean. It leads into that actually kind of leads into my next question because I was kind of curious about what you were thinking about now or what are the things you're interested in uh, kind of exploring and researching and, and kind of working through in your work now. How, how has that changed or what are you kind of what's next for you? Right now I am studying the happiness industry, mm. its vocabulary and its uh, legibility. And this is in part drawing on some of the work done at the Senberg Institute on 
positive thinking and positive psychology. So I had the chance this spring and summer to do a research residency at Art Text. Oh, nice. Which is a contemporary uh, Canadian art archive. And so from that, uh, there's also now uh, really great news, which is that they, they've offered me a grant to take that research and to massage it into a happiness glossary and then to transform it into like an absurdist search engine. Oh, nice. Congratulations. That sounds awesome. So the key to happiness is uh, for now in the keyword. And uh, yeah, so there's a, there's a really interesting kind of a foray back into my own practice. Yeah, yeah. It's not very selfish. I mean, it's also quite collaborative. And so there are lots of individuals I'm meeting with, uh, lots of texts and books that I'm reading, and then I'm interviewing the authors. And I'm also uh, at arm's length uh, trying to uh, work on something with the Department of Unusual Certainties in Toronto, because they too have been uh, working along these lines. And so it is an attempt to get back to doing the thing that I do. Right. And if that's selfish, then so be it. Uh, It doesn't mean... (laughs) won't be happening but i've had to kind of like recalibrate the percentages of things that are happening yeah uh my last question you mentioned a couple a couple people throughout this conversation but i'm curious who are the people or the writers or even the books that have kind of influenced you and how you think about all of this stuff that we've been been talking about today oh, good question i can tell you what i'm reading right now that that works too so one book that i'm rereading is called Psychopolitics, mm. and it's by uh, Mr. Han, who is a professor at the Berlin University of the Arts, and uh, he's also written The Burnout Society, which is on my oh, list yeah. right now to read. Um, uh, the book is very much about the way in which uh, our psychic lives are being mined by companies and, mm. and how that operates. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, Psychopolitics is a bit of a hint towards um, Foucault's biopolitics. So mm-hmm. it's a bit of a response to that and how it's evolving. And the other book that I'm rereading right now is a book that I have a book cover on now. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it's called The Happiness Industry. It's by William Davies, who's a oh, political yeah. science, pol- political economist. Yeah, and it's very much about how the industry operates, but there's a, a really interesting take on the history mm. of uh, the the attempts to turn our inner lives into things that we can rationalize and objectify and measure and analyze mm-hmm. and package and sell and trade. Mm-hmm. So these two books have been uh, really uh, my kind of like partners in crime throughout this research. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I wish um, I I would say I read I read a lot of books and I read a lot of newspapers. But the only kinds of uh, let's say design or art or architecture magazines I read are I'm quite fond of uh, Volume magazine mm, from Amsterdam. Yeah. yeah, I quite like the very open and honest kind of like forums for conversations that they create. Mm-hmm. And I am also uh, contributing to C Magazine, which is a contemporary art magazine. Mm. And our March 2019 issue is a design and power edition. Oh, interesting. So I would look that up because these are anomalies huh? when um, yeah. get these special design editions coming out of art magazines. They're uh, quite the, the treasure troves because they're so rare. Yeah. 
Oh, I love that. This was such an interesting conversation. I feel like I you've got me thinking about a lot of things that had been kind of like percolating on the back of my mind for the last couple of months and, and you helped bring them forward a little bit and, and start to articulate kind of my own thinking around these. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. I'm a big fan of your work and the way you think about these things. And this was such a uh, nice conversation. So thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. This episode was recorded on February 19th, 2019. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.